0: turn to your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 19 this morning. So glad to have you all here with us today. As you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, I'll introduce you once again to this morning's message titled, in this three-week series, The Church Sings, This Morning, The Lord Almighty Reigns. I want to walk us through the outline for this morning so you know where we're headed. Verses 1 through 3, what will heavenly worship look like? And sound like? Verses 4 and 5, who will be there to worship as God's kingdom building is being complete? Verses 6 or 8, how will the church prepare for her bridegroom? And verse 9, how, where will the church sing at the end of time? A big idea for you to take home today. One day, the church will be with her bridegroom, Christ, forevermore. Our struggles will be over, and peace will be ours forever. The church sings a song of victory, celebrating all that God has done. During the last two weeks, we began this series called The Church Sings and studied through Philippians chapter 1 through 4, and now to Revelation chapter 19. We talked about training up our children, how to be role models to them, for our grandchildren, role models for our spouse, our neighbors, even those sitting next to you at church. In Philippians chapter 4, we talked last week about living a life that's in reasonableness with others, rejoicing on all occasions, bringing our prayers to God, all in the context of seeking to be a worshiper maturing in Christ. And then specifically on how singing to God His truths is a beautiful command for the believer and helps us in our daily discipleship and our daily growth. This final week, we're heading to Revelation chapter 19 to talk about our future worship. And I wanted to provide a little background to the book of Revelation for those of us less familiar with its writings and for others to help bring about some clarity for its purpose in our minds. Revelation, the title there, means an unveiling or a disclosure. The author identifies himself as John, although not named as the Apostle John, He is, however, the most convincing author based on testimony of historic church fathers, other historical documents we can look at. And honestly, he's just the simplest and most convincing solution to name the Apostle John as the one who wrote the book of Revelation. He informs us that he wrote the letter from Patmos. That's an island off the Aegean Sea, off the coast of modern-day Turkey. I have a couple of pictures for us this morning an author has painted some renderings of what she had seen as reading scripture here pictured revelation chapter 1 verse 9 is John on the island of patmos he's pictured here on the island presumably exiled there by the romans because of his proclamation of the gospel he is there spoken to by a voice in jewish teachings there's a lot of voices And the voice usually refers to God's voice, although it could here even be a voice of an angel. John sees this glorious vision of the Son of Man when he looks. The vision is not literal, but it's packed full of imagery, characteristic of apocalyptic literature. So I'll warn you today, we can become preoccupied with each feature of his vision and miss the impact of the book on a whole and not focus on God's power and glory. The text specifically uses the word like several times to demonstrate that it is a representation and it should not all be taken literally. John then in his writing of the book Revelation begins recounting the story of what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, John is told to write therefore the things you've seen those that are, and the things that are to take place. So to give you an outline of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, the things which, John, you have seen. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the things that are. And then Revelation chapter 4 through 22, the things which will soon take place. Note that it's one revelation, not revelations plural. It's the one revelation from the one and only true God. And the only New Testament book that focuses primarily on prophetic events. It's highly prophetic. Something can be found prophetic in every single one of its 22 chapters. Interestingly enough, out of the 404 verses in Revelation, 383 of them are prophetic. So that's 95% of this book. And since it has such a rich prophetic background here, much of it needs to be taken figuratively. It implies, however, that the message that we'll receive and these things that we are seeing and hearing can be understood. So the key that I would suggest to unlock Revelation's mysteries is understanding what things ought to be symbolic and what things ought to be taken literally. For even symbols can represent real places and real people. The book of Revelation concludes all the prophecies of the Hebrew prophets, the writings of the apostles, even the teachings of Jesus. So, here we have Revelation chapter 4, now to Revelation chapter 18. That deals with the events of the Great Tribulation. And where we'll start today, Revelation chapter 19, focusing on heaven and the second coming of Christ. There's a chronological development that has started here, and the words we continue to see are after this, so after that time to the next. So, today we're jumping to Revelation chapter 19 as we study rejoicing in heaven— and the Lord Almighty who will reign. Revelation chapter 19, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word as our practice here, verses 1 through 9. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him. "'Small and great. "'Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, "'like the roar of many waters, "'the sound of mighty peals of thunder, "'crying out, Hallelujah, "'for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. "'Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, "'for the marriage of the Lamb has come "'and his bride has made herself ready. "'It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, verse 9, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. You may be seated. Verses 1 through 3, What will heavenly worship look and sound like? A good exercise for you this week is to list the attributes of God emphasized in these first nine verses. And then ask yourself questions like, why is God the only one worthy of praise? And do we feel that God's salvation and glory and power are even enough for us sometimes? Can we sing to him a praise for what he has done, is doing, and will do? And maybe ask yourself, What are some reasons you've praised God for recently? And imagine what heavenly worship will look and sound like. And perhaps you're here today with us and you're not worshiping him here on earth. Ask yourself, will I worship him one day in heaven, if not here? John was being given a long revelation, recounting of a story that has happened, is happening and will happen. Revelation chapter 4, to give you some context, there was a door that was opened unto heaven. It says in verse 1 and 2, After this I looked, John looked, and behold, a door standing open to heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what what must take place after this. So here we have Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. It dealt with the church of John's day, the seven churches in Revelation, examples of the type of churches that we could have today. Then as John looks at this door standing open to the heavens here, John is shown what must take place after this. And for many of the next chapters here, we go through a time of called the Great Tribulation here. And here we're getting to Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. It also begins with an after this. He's referring to that time of this great tribulation, this destruction of Babylon and Rome, the empire of the beast, which he described in chapters 17 and 18. This destruction of this worldly power, demonic forces, forces likened to the final destiny of all who will oppose God both individuals and governments who reject God will face his judgment one day those who have a passion for immorality those who live for greed and for luxury ignoring the treasures of heaven the fall of this worldly government has become has come babylon has fallen she is referred to here has fallen babylon is called she because she's described as the great harlot who will be doubly judged for her extravagant living, her excessive pride, and her killing of God's people. Now to this prophetic timeline. Verse 1. John now, is he, now hears what sounded like the roar of a great multitude, praising God for what he has done in defeating these evil powers. This great multitude is seen by many writers to be an angelic host, Others, including myself, understand this as the great multitude made up of faithful dead in Christ. I'll refer us back to Revelation chapter 7. I'll read verses 9 and 10. It speaks of this same great multitude and says, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, was a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They shouted, Hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. It occurs only four times in the New Testament, all here in Revelation. Heaven continues to shout in this verse here, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. The original Greek here has direct articles in front of each of the nouns. So there's no other type of salvation or other type of glory or other type of power. It is the salvation, the glory, the power of the one God, the one King, And then each of those three attributes of God should awaken in us some response. The salvation of God should awaken the gratitude in our hearts. The glory of God should awaken the reverence in our hearts. And the power of God is always exercised by the love of God and therefore should awaken the trust in our hearts. Gratitude, reverence, and trust, these are elements of praise Look to verse 2, the multitude in heaven praising God for his judgment against Babylon, against this prostitute. This evil empire is now defeated. God will have avenged the blood of the martyred, those believers who had given up their lives fighting for God's kingdom building. This is the church triumphant. And in this season in which the church will soon be with her bridegroom, Christ forevermore. Her struggles will be over and peace will be hers forever. And the church sings here the beginning of a song of victory, celebrating all that God has done. Look to verse 3. Once more they cry out, hallelujah, the smoke from her, the smoke from Babylon, this defeated empire will burn forevermore, symbolizing her forever defeat just like a millstone that's tossed into the sea. Another image to describe the defeat of Babylon in the last chapter, 18. Like a millstone sunk in the ocean, never to be found again, Babylon is like a raging fire, burnt up, never to exist again. John's readers here would perhaps recall the oracle of Isaiah against Edom, in which the enemy's land there was to burn night and day. And its smoke will rise up forever. In response here, the great multitude sings, Hallelujah. This hallelujah is taken in part from the Halal Psalms. These are praise psalms from 119 to 118. And they're all related to the Jewish Passover meal. There they would sing a hallelujah, a praise to God before the meal and afterwards. So think back, Israel here sang God's praises for their deliverance in the Passover. And the church in heaven here now sings God's praise for his deliverance once again. This is a triumphal praise, heralding more than just the downfall of Babylon. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's coming to take center stage as the cantata of praise here. So what will heavenly worship look like and sound like? One hallelujah praising who God is and another hallelujah praising him for what he has done. This is the beginning of the last song of praise in the Bible, describing a day to come in the future when all the church will sing in heaven after the last battle is won. Heavenly worship will look like and sound like an uncomprehensible beauty that no words can describe. And John's visions here are only the humanly descriptions that he can give of what he's hearing in this vision right now. Just imagine how majestic our worship will be in heaven, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. John is about to tell us now what he's seen, which we were given more detail of in Revelation chapter 4. So next verse is verse 4. We're going to jump back to Revelation chapter 4 and give you a more detailed picture of what's happening. Here's a picture of the emerald throne, and I'm going to read to you Revelation chapter 4, 2 through 11. Look at the picture that this person has painted to help describe what she saw as reading, when reading Scripture. At once I was in the Spirit, said John, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the, tw- on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And, the thro- and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second one an ox, the third the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes, all around and within. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fall down before him. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exi- existed and were created. There's a time of worship that's happening here. Sin and the enemies have, been gu- have begun to be judged And we will worship him in praise by both these celestial and human beings in exuberant response for God's sovereign judgment upon evil. This is the beginning of a final victory. But we do not rejoice over sin. We grieve over sin. We do not rejoice that the sinners are punished. Our, Our hearts break over the punishment of sinners. We rejoice, though, that God is true, and righteous and just. See the words from the, the Getty song we sang this morning, The Lord Almighty Reigns. There is an endless song waiting to be sung with the voice of every tribe, the sound of every tongue, when the bride of Christ on that day of days brings with joy unto the Lamb a multitude of praise. The Getty said, One day our biggest celebration will come when all God's people from all parts of the world over all the centuries, will gather together to praise Him. And Scripture tells us what their words or their songs should be, so they used it for the chorus of this modern hymn. Let's look to verses 4 and 5. Who will be there to worship as God's kingdom is being completed? Verse 4, here we see again, in short, what I just read to you from Revelation chapter 4. The elders here and the living creatures falling down, here in an act symbolizing total surrender, a very serious form of worship. The worship is addressed to God alone, Lord of all, and they utter the hymns sang by the great multitude. This is the only place in the Bible where we see the words Amen and Hallelujah joined together, other than in Psalm 106, verse 48. Psalm 106 functioned as a doxology for the fourth book of the Psalms. It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, Hallelujah. The Psalm here, this verse follows a prayer for deliverance for the nations. It's a fitting context for heavenly worship when we celebrate this final victory The reality of a final deliverance. The amen confirms the worship of the previous hymns. And the hallelujah continues the praise. Look to verse 5. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God. You'll find a lot of voices in Revelation. Some from heaven, some from the temple, some from the throne. Most are assumed to be God's voice, but here the voice says, praise our God. So some commentators are convinced that this is one of the heavenly beings that's surrounding the throne. For the voice of God, they say, or the Lamb would have said, my God and not our God. But perhaps it's the voice of Christ himself. For John imitates Ezekiel's description with the vivid expression of God's glory when he said there was an appearance of the form of, Lord's, of the Lord's glory but no precise description is given to us. Either way, we know that the speaker here has divine authorization to speak. As servants, we should be reminded that we need to have a holy and healthy fear in the presence of God. For if the Spirit dwells within the life of the believer, then we should remind ourselves of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Which says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that lives within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I'd ask you here today, who do you glorify? Verse 5 continues, both small and great. There is no worldly status of those in low or high society, those Believers who are seeking to be worshippers, maturing in Christ. Worshippers of all levels of maturity. Psalm 115 says, You who fear the Lord, trust the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord remembers us and will, will bless us. He'll bless the house of Israel and of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. Small and great alike. This call to praise of the Lord here in heaven includes the great multitude of those faithful dead in Christ. It includes these elders, these celestial beings, and now the call to the church still left at this time, left on earth. The whole throne room here was already in worship. This next call to worship is for all those who will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the very last days, the church has already been raptured by this point in a pre tribulation dispensation. That means that we believe in the blessed hope, the personal, imminent pre tribulation, premillennial coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for his redeemed ones. Revelation chapter 9 is occurring at the end of a future seven year tribulation, after the New Testament church has been raptured. And so this call to praise extends down to those saved or that believers are there during the tribulation period. And Christ's subsequent return to earth that you see in the second half of 19, he'll, with his saints, establish then a millennial kingdom and reign for a thousand years. So who will be there to worship as God's kingdom building is completed? There's this great multitude, the New Testament church believers. There's these elders, these celestial beings. And now a call to those remaining who are keeping the faith and the doctrine pure. Look on to verses 6 through 8. How will the church prepare for her bridegroom? Both the New Testament church believers, us today, and this great multitude that's singing in heaven, heaven, were both preparing for Christ, the bridegroom, to take all believers, the church universal as his bride, to celebrate at their consummation at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look to verse 6. Here again, the hallelujah chorus continues. The voice, similar to the loud voice in verse 1, now expands to the voice of many waters and of thunder. You see, we're arriving at the climax of history. And such drama is appropriate for the announcement That God is, at last, establishing his universal reign. Amen? Perhaps we take for granted God's sovereign plan. At times in our lives, here there will be no doubt, for God will destroy the power of evil, and God's kingdom will become a visible reality. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Look to the lyrics of our song, and like the roar of many seas and the roll of thunder, hear his people sing, hallelujah, hallelujah, the Lord Almighty reigns. It begs the question, what do we allow to lord over our lives today? To lord over means to whom a person or a thing belongs something that has power over another thing in its decision-making, a master, possessor, owner, prince, chief, ruler. What do we let rule over our lives today? Consider how we can remove unwanted idols in our lives that are beginning to reign and to lord over us. Consider why it is so hard sometimes to give God glory for these faithful dead in Christ who have gone before us now sing the supreme title, The Lord our God Almighty reigns. Verse 7 It is the marriage supper of the Lamb, not the marriage supper of the King. For the one title that Christ wants to have for all eternity is the Lamb, because it speaks of his love for the church and the precious, precious price he paid for his bride. Marriage was the first social institution that God created. One of the reasons why homosexuality is such a heinous sin is because it strikes at the heart of God's created order. God established marriage as a relationship of one man and one woman for life, commanded to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. It can only be done through the marriage union of a man and a woman. For every child needs a father and a mother. But even more importantly, God's relationship with his people is described in the terms of a marriage. John MacArthur wrote three phases of a Hebrew wedding. A betrothal period, a presentation period with festivities lasting several days, and then the ceremony, the exchanging of the vows. The church was betrothed to Christ by his sovereign choice in eternity past and will be presented to him at the future rapture. The final supper will signify an end of the ceremony. For in Judaism, when the time for the public ceremony came, the groom would go to the bride's house. He would take her for himself. He would take her home for the wedding supper with all the guests invited, and they would join in for that happy occasion. The church today is engaged to Christ. We love him even though we don't see him. One day he will come for his church. He will take his bride to heaven. And at the judgment seat of Christ, all of her spots and her blemishes will be removed. Then the church will be ready for the return with her bridegroom at the close of the tribulation, to reign with him for this thousand years. So ask yourself, consider, what ways are you preparing yourself today as the bride of Christ? And do you find it difficult to give him praise when times are difficult? Look to verse 8. In another magnificent show of sovereignty, the bride will be given by God, clothes, of fine linen, bright and pure. Here, the bride's apparel stands in contrast to the fine linens of Babylon that was destroyed, which her fine linen was luxury and debauchery. The bride here is ready because she has lived a holy life and has done so what is pleasing to God and has not followed the pathway carved out by Babylon and other worldly evils, Still, the righteous deeds of the bride are the result of God's work in her life. You see, God's sovereignty guides us through the actions of our lives, both for the righteous and for the unrighteous. But in this passage, there seems to be some contradiction between God's control and the actions he allows of the bride. James told us that faith without works is dead. Paul said, grace, you have been saved, but not by works. You see, these deeds of the bride, the church universal, all believers follow after salvation. And they are part of the seeking to be worshipers who are maturing in Christ. This is a necessary proof of the regeneration that's happened in the heart of a believer. Two sides of the Christian life, Philippians chapter 2 talks about. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's compare what we just read in Philippians chapter 2 to what's here in Revelation chapter 8, or 19 verse 8. The believers are to work out their own salvation, or to prepare herself, to prepare ourselves, just as God works in them, or in Revelation has given her clothes to wear, he will give us clothes to wear in eternal purity. For as God is pure, so must his bride be pure. I encourage you, if you're here with us today, to allow God to make you pure. Pure. May we place our eternal trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ alone who's paid the penalty on the cross for our sins and has established an eternal home for us with him in heaven. How does our anticipation of Revelation chapter 19 help us praise him both during good times and difficult? There is a purity and a victory to come. So how will the church prepare for her bridegroom? right where you are today. Just as Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt my God, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. God will have given the victorious church her bright, pure linen to symbolize her triumph and the purity that she's maintained. Let's look to verse 9. Where will the church sing at the end of time? And the angel said to John, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The saints are both the bride and the invited guests here. God not only gives the wedding garment to his bride, he also calls those he wishes to attend the wedding supper. All believers are chosen by God. They are invited by God. He is the one doing the inviting. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 26, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Such promises should cause the believer to anticipate with great joy that great messianic banquet at the marriage supper of the lamb, to celebrate the long-awaited marriage of the lamb and his bride, the church. The angel says here to John in verse 9, these are the true words of God. In authentication, concluding this hallelujah chorus, and the song of the great heavenly multitude, an Amen. An anchor being dropped at the end of this section, securing this important truth. As we'll sing today, we will join the feast, rest from battles won. Tell with great rejoicing all the wonders God has done. The angel said these are the true words of God. These promises are so great and so stunning and so different from the things of life on this earth. With its sorrow and its sufferings, that we need to be assured they are true, they will become a reality. Certain of that day, Christ we will proclaim. Oh, that more should share the price, salvation in his name, then greater will the anthem ring a mighty chorus to the king. The final of Revelation chapter 19, celebrating this marriage supper of the Lamb. I encourage you, continue reading the second half of Revelation chapter 19. See the warrior Messiah come into focus here. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord our God Almighty reigns. He will rule his millennial reign. He'll defeat... And throw him into the lake of fire. He will be the true and better overseer at the judgment before the great white throne. And he will establish a new heaven and a new earth. And he, the Lord, our God, almighty, will reign forever and ever in the new Jerusalem with his bride, the church, the wife of the lamb. One day... The church will be with her bridegroom, Christ, forevermore. Our struggles will be over, and peace will be ours forever. The church sings a song of victory, celebrating all that God has done. Pray with me now. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, let us recognize you as the one and only true God, worthy of our praise. May we rejoice and sing of your salvation and your glory and your power. Bring to mind reasons that we lack in trusting you. Bring bring to mind the things that we allow to lord over us in this world. Teach us how we ought to praise you on the throne. Remove unwanted idols in our lives that are beginning to reign over us. And Lord, unite us in community with this local church body, that we can continue to encourage one another with practical ways to be preparing ourselves as the bride of Christ. And when we find it difficult to praise you, Lord, may we sing to you a new song. Study passages like Philippians chapter 1 and 4 and Revelation 19. For we look forward to your kingdom building and the marriage supper of the Lamb. May we proclaim it boldly to the ends of the earth. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.